0: Okay, if you were not here last week, um, 10 push-ups. If you were not here last week, we started a series called Hopeful Faith, which is talking about Christian faith in a context where a lot of people in the culture, a lot of people in the church are very cynical, very negative, not very hopeful. Sometimes you hang around Christians and you think, all the air just got let out of my balloon. Um, And faith in the Bible is more hopeful. Last week we looked at hopeful faith in God, and distinguish this philosophical difference between God as objective reality and God as lived experience and how often our problem in the Christian life, particularly with God, is how do you put together objective reality and lived experience? We did that through the lens of grammar, we did that through the lens of philosophy, And we talked about the book of Ephesians, which is the book we're in, these great six chapters in Ephesians, of how the first part of the Ephesians, the section we looked at last week, and actually the section we're going to look at this week, doesn't tell us what to do. One of the great things about the evangelical side of the Christian church is how activistic it is, and one of the worst things about the evangelical side of the Christian faith is how activistic it is. Uh, A lot of people think the Christian faith is doing, 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 but the Bible doesn't exactly present it that way. So last week was hopeful faith in God, this week is hopeful faith with others. The subtext of this series is how to read the Bible carefully. That's the subtext, about Ephesians, about the six chapters, but the subtext is how to read the Bible carefully. We're gonna do six things again today. We did six things last week. We're gonna start with philosophy, then we're gonna go to grammar. Then we're going to have a reflective reading. Then we're going to look at a word cloud. Then we're going to look at a poem. And then we're going to talk about the implications. So we're going to do that in about 28 minutes, for those of you watching or watch. Uh, We're going to look at those six things. So we're going to start with philosophy. And those of you listening online, I have two stools in the front. Uh, I didn't mention that last week, so some people were not quite clear what I was talking about online. So we have two stools at the front. And I want to talk about philosophy from the standpoint of who we are. Any of you who studied philosophy will know that philosophy talks about our existence. It tries to understand what we're like, uh, how we function in the world, what the world is like. It's not religion. It's kind of more a way to understand our existence. So these two stools represent two major movements in philosophy. This stool represents community, the collective, the connectedness that we have with people. This stool represents the individual in his or her autonomy. Okay, so over here, this is about my connectedness with others. This one is about my autonomy or individuality, sort of my sense of myself. And if you've read any philosophy, or even if you're in tune with the culture, you will know that this philosophy, that we find our prime existence in our connectedness with others, And this philosophy that we find our prime existence in our sense of self are very different ways of being, very different ways of being. This one really always asks the question, what is the common good? What is best for all? What actually is, in totality, what's going to be best for this group of people? This one asks the question, what is my personal preference? What are my personal feelings? What is my personal attitude? And so you can feel the tension already before we start fleshing out some of the detail. This one says, what's good for the whole? This one says, what is good for me? If you've read uh, the, Austri- uh, the Austrian philosopher Martin Buber, one of the things he said is that we need to see life as I and thou. I understand myself, not for myself, I understand myself with reference to somebody else. This one over here says something very different. This one says, I have an intra self and what's most important is what's going on inside me. So, Boomer's I-thou philosophy, what's most important in my relationship with the other, is very different than this one, which says, the prime relationship is me with me. And so, if you reflect on the culture right now and how the culture understands things, you can see the incredible tension and difference between these. So, let me um, talk briefly about the proverb, and you can... uh, put that one up. Some of you may have seen this proverb before. It's an African proverb, sometimes called the Ubuntu proverb. I am because you are, if you are not, I cannot be. Now, if you look at the size of the words in that sentence, there's nobody sitting listening right now who could say in response to that, I have no clue what those words mean. Like They're so short. I am because you are, if you are not, I cannot be. But in in an African context and with African culture, particularly more historical African culture, they are rooted heavily in this stool. So when I, thou matters, and what matters most is my relationship with you, I can say I am because you are, and if you are not, I cannot be. My sense of self is inextricably tied to my relationship with you. The alternative of course, and this is more typical of Western culture, I am my own person. I am my authentic and true self. And you see the difference. One is my relationship with myself, and in this world, the 10th fruit of the spirit becomes authenticity, right? So in Western contemporary Western culture, if I said I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm being authentic, that sounds like a really good thing because that's what Western culture is like. If you go to a, a, another country, uh, particularly more in the East, and you say, I am being my own self, they would respond to that the same way we respond to, I am because you are. If you are not, I cannot be. We just got a little whisker scratching. We got a whisker scratching. Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. There we go. Super, it's good to have a makeup artist right on site. It's amazing. Now, this is not a series on the church, but let me suggest to you one of the reasons the church is not working very well right now is because of these two stools. The church is premised on I am because you are if you're not or cannot be. The whole biblical record is written in an Eastern context with this as the core philosophy. We're living in a culture where I'm my own person, I'm authentic, I'm living in a way that's consistent with what I think and believe. So the notion that I have to think of the other in my relationship doesn't make any sense. So the church, therefore, doesn't make a lot of sense in this culture because the church is premised on this philosophy but we're living in this philosophy. And it's interesting, isn't it? We're gonna talk about loneliness uh, in a couple of weeks in terms of a theme, but it's interesting, isn't it, that this culture has some negative things This culture has produced some negative things as well. This culture where the collective was the most important and where the the sense of community was the most important. What's the dark side of this? The dark side of this is individuals get marginalized. So women and children and minorities... They get marginalized because the group think takes over. And what's the risk over here? The risk over here is the individual takes over so much that actually what happens is the negative output of that is loneliness. And isn't it interesting in the culture right now, we're talking about how prevalent loneliness is, and one of the reasons loneliness is a problem is because this is the philosophy that undergirds loneliness. I'm my own person, which by definition means I don't need you, but then I go, oh, I do need you, I'm feeling lonely. And so my intra self, what's going on inside me, seems so different than my communal self which is different. And the question of course is, when we think about the Christian faith, is the Christian faith as it's presented in scripture more rooted in this philosophy? about the common good, I am because you are, if you are not, I cannot be, or is it rooted in this philosophy of individualism? If we did a a religious comparison, it's interesting in the evangelical world how we've pushed this stool pretty heavily, and in the Catholic world, this stool has been pushed pretty heavily. Some of you have Catholic friends that go to mass every Sunday, some of them go, go to mass every day, and part of what they're saying is this matters. But in our evangelical faith, which is personal faith, personal Bible study, personal devotions, personal this, personal that, our risk is that we become individuals with a connection with God, but not with each other. Hopeful faith with others. But let's go to grammar. Some of you told me last week it brought back some horror stories for you of your experience of grammar, so here we go again, more horror, more post-traumatic stress for those of you who didn't like grammar. I want to talk about two types of pronouns. First one is to talk about personal pronouns. Personal pronouns can be singular or plural. So a singular personal pronoun is I. A plural personal pronoun is we. Right? Very simple. I or we. When a personal pronoun becomes a possessive adjective, okay, so a personal pronoun becomes a possessive adjective, the I changes to my, and the we changes to our. So, those of you who were not here last week, this will make absolutely no sense to you, but you can ask somebody after. I went with Andrew Chong to temper last week. That's the singular personal pronoun. That means that I went with Andrew to temper. I didn't, I asked him, we talked after. He did not come through after the sermon, so I've decided I'm gonna use him through the three Sundays in this series. to see if at the end something will come of this, uh, something deeply spiritual and important. Those of you who were not here last week have no idea why I'm talking about uh, Andrew's problem with anger. So, So I went to Temporal last week with Andrew, that's personal pronoun, I, singular. We went with Andrew Chong to Temporal last week and apparently some of you asked him and he didn't come through either so we didn't get to go. Uh, we went to An- with Andrew Chong to temper last week. That's the personal pronoun, we. Obviously, the difference is I is just me. We is us, right? We're together in this. It's not like I went myself. We went together. And then if we were to use the possessive adjective, if I went with Andrew Chong to temper last week, then it would be my chocolate. But if we went with Andrew Chong to temper last week, it would be our chocolate, right? Now, here's the question. Is I and my more Christian than we and our? Like, how do we want to talk about the Christian faith? So let me, let me give an example of talking to two couples, uh, not related to this church, so don't worry. Uh, two couples that I was, Bev and I were sitting in front of over the last number of months, people that we know. And in both cases, the men were talking okay, which is not unusual, but anyway, that's another subject for another time, so both the men were talking, and in this one, so Bev and I are sitting in this restaurant beside each other, and the couple are sitting across from us, and he's talking, and it's I, 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 we haven't seen them for a long time, it's I, 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 and I thought, are they divorced, are they separated, like, you're sitting right beside your wife, why are you saying I all the time, and then he started talking about my son, and I was going, my son, like, aren't they their children, or does he have a was he married before? Did he have another child? Like He kept talking about my son. And then he started talking about my house. And my house, like, have you got a separate house from her? Like, and then I was going through that, and then I realized that's the way he talks. It's I, and it's my son. I mean, she carried the kid for nine months. Why is it your son? You had a role to play, but it wasn't a heck of a lot. Um, like, why is it your son? Isn't it our son? And don't you live in the same house? My goodness, you sleep in the same bed. Like, what are you talking about my house, not your house? And then I thought after, maybe it is his house. Maybe that's the way he acts at home. This is my house, because there are some men around like that, some of them Christians, unfortunately. But then we've been with our couple sitting across the table, and they talk about we, 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 we. They talk about our son, our children. They talk about our house. They talk about our life. And have you noticed that personal pronouns, even though they're small and tiny and they're little tiny words and they're very short, they often reflect attitudes. If I'm always in the I, my world, and I'm never in the we, our world, I miss something really, really important. What is the Christian faith? Is the Christian faith about I and my, or is the Christian faith about we, an hour. What is the Christian faith actually about? Now let's look at the second person, personal pronoun, the second person pronoun, which is you. Uh, any of you, English wasn't your first language or you know people that English isn't the first language, you'll hear them say this, like uh, yous are going to the store on the weekend, aren't you? Yous are going to the store. And they put an S at the end. And the reason they put an S at the end is because English is confusing. Because the second person personal pronoun you in English is used in the singular and in the plural. So when we say in English you or you, I need to say more before you know that it's one person's being talked about or more than one person's being talked about. So I have some, some Asian friends who English is not their first language, and they'll often talk about you yous know, are leaving. And I think, no, 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 it's when you are leaving. But they think because there's two of you, it must be you's. But no, because there's two of us, it's you. That's all it is. And so that's confusing when you're learning English. In Old English uh, and in Early English, the way that was captured was the difference between thou and ye. Thou was singular and ye was plural. God rest ye merry gentlemen, right? That's plural. Plural. So ye and thou help distinguish it. But now, if I was to say, and this isn't made up, uh, this is actually true. If I was to say, Kim, you're a fine person, and I think she is, and I could give you lots of reasons why, but I won't embarrass her. Uh, Kim, I think you are a fine person. And if I said, Matt and Kim, you are good people. And I think they are. They are good people. They're not, you know, calling their own press conference all the time like lots of pastoral leaders do. They just, they do their work. They do it behind the scenes. They don't look for accolades. These are good people. And if I said, you are good people, and you are a good person, you are a good person too, but I'm just trying to make a point here. So, you are a good person, you are good people, you're not a good, no. You are a good person, you are a good person, and you are good people. I'm using you in the singular and the plural. Now, why is this important? One of the great hazards of the evangelical faith is some people open their Bible, and when they see you, they think, isn't this lovely, God is speaking to me. But actually, the Bible was not written to you. It was written to us. And when the Bible says you, the Bible is actually talking about plural, not talking about individual. Some people will say, like, I don't know, all this church stuff and coming to church and talking about the Bible and being together with people and listening to people talk about the Bible. Like, what's that? I could be at home doing that on my own. You could, but you can't. You just woke up, you have no idea what I just said. You could, but you can't, because the you is communal. It's plural. When the Bible talks about you, it's actually talking about us together. It's not my faith. It's our faith. It's not that I am a Christian. It's that we are Christians. And one of the reasons, and let's be candid here, folks, one of the reasons a lot of our millennial friends don't like church is because their critique of the church is we're actually not journeying together. We're just coming to church and we're sitting in a service and we're doing all the stuff we do in a service, but actually many millennials will say to you, I have people I journey with and I have hopeful faith in the people I journey with, but all this church stuff doesn't appeal to me because I don't get the sense we're doing this together. It's just a bunch of us sitting in chairs listening to people do stuff up front. And that's the difference. And our millennial friends, for those of you who are boomers like me or traditionalists, older than me, we need to be really, really careful to recognize that we boomers have been raised in a privatized, individualized culture. And if we've been raised in an evangelical culture, we've deeply rooted our faith. This is my faith. This is my experience. This is my life with God. It's all I and my stuff. But the Bible's we and our and being together, and that's why in many churches now, we see a lot of old people like me, and not a lot of younger people, because they often, not always, but often want to journey with, and it's our, rather than just be individuals, and make it privatized. So the question is, what is the Bible? Is the Bible a we faith, and an our faith, or is the Bible an I faith, and a my faith? So let's do a reflective reading again, as we did last week. Those of you who are here for the first time, this is a series where I'm not preaching scripture, but we're just reading scripture, which is a an art that's been lost, it seems to me. And I want you to watch for two things. One of the questions I want you to ask as I'm reading this is what does it mean to be a Christian in this passage? What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, many of us in this room, including the person speaking now, if if you said to me, what does it mean to be a Christian, I would roll my baby blues around and look around my navel somewhere, and I'd explain what it means to be a Christian in here. That's how I would describe what it means to be a Christian. Does this passage talk at all about my intrapsychic self? Does it talk at all about that? Or does it frame the Christian faith in this stool in my connection with others? So that's question number one, our first thing to watch for. The second one is notice how the biblical description of us together again says nothing about what we need to do. Nothing about what we need to do. This whole passage is about the way God the architect puts together his people in his way, in his time, and puts this we collective together. And as he puts the we collective together, we are simply recipients in that. So prepare, concentrate, listen, reflect. Some of you may want to have your eyes closed as we read through this. Some of you may want to have them open and read the passage on the sheet in front of you. So again, listen for these two things. Is this an internal faith or is it a connected faith? And is this a faith where we do a lot Or is this a faith where God does it all? So let's listen to God's word. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Therefore... Remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. His intent was that now, through the church, The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now I hope as you listen to that you hear these two stools and the tension of them. This entire passage says nothing about the subjective, personal, intrapsychic reality of the individual Christian. It says everything about their connectedness with the other. We could summarize over this passage, I am because you are. If you are not, I cannot be. To say to this passage, I am my own true authentic self seems weird in this passage. But herein lies the passage. So let's look at the word cloud together. Many of you will know that a word cloud uh, is a way of expressing which words are used most frequently in in a text. So when I went through this entire text and did a word cloud on it, this is what came up. The big words are the most frequent words. The smaller words are the less frequent words. And so as we did last week, let's just, this isn't a hard question, it's just a simple way to acknowledge it. What jumps out at you uh, in light of hearing the passage and looking at that? what Not a chance for a sermon or a speech, just a, a phrase or a sentence. What leaps out at you as you look at that word cloud? Christ. People and body, yep, everything, Trinity, together, may God. And as we did last week, um, someone want to try a sentence that pulls the word cloud together? If you have to do a summary of that word cloud in a sentence, what would you say? How would you pull that together? Holy people may become God's love, that's good. Somebody else? Everybody will become one body for Christ, good, okay. Okay. Now, one of the things that's striking to me, and I have, you you go through a lot when you prepare something, went through a lot of conviction in preparing for today. Because when I think of all the things that I talk about when I talk about the church, and I think of all the things I talk about when I talk about Cap Church, and I think of all the things that preoccupy me in my leadership role here at Cap Church, and I look at that word cloud, my response is, God have mercy. This is God's preoccupation with what it means to have a hopeful faith with others. This is what preoccupies God. And I'm looking for politics. I'm looking for how long are the sermons. I'm looking for do I like the building. I'm looking for, you know, you go on and on. All the stuff that preoccupies us about church, but the living hope. And the living faith with others and the hopeful faith with others is expressed in these kind of words. A number of years ago, uh, in the 90s actually, when I was struggling with these two stools myself and struggling with whether my faith was as private and individual as I was hearing in the church and frankly struggling with my own journey that I find a lot of the Christian world quite alienating. I know I'm not supposed to say that publicly, but I just did. I find a lot of the Christian world quite alienating, and I find a lot of the evangelical world quite immersed in contemporary Western culture and not immersed in Scripture. And so in struggling through that for myself and trying to decide, and Bev and I have been on this journey for many years of thinking, you know, centrality of Jesus, I'm into that. Centrality of the Bible, I'm into that. Centrality of living that out in word and action. I'm into that, but some of the other stuff drives me crazy, and all this privatized, individualized, personal stuff—it's pushed so far western culture. We've lost a sense about the culture. Actually, it's not about what the Bible teaches, and so some's right when we are struggling through something. So I wrote this poem. So let me read this to you. Follow it on the screen, or follow it. Um, poem is simply called Together. If you were here last week, you remember Margaret Fishback Powers' Footprints in the Sand. You know, I carried you on the sand, right? There's something really profound about that. That's really important. But can I say publicly that I think Margaret Fishback Powers missed a little bit of the biblical emphasis in her Footprints in the Sand poem. And at the risk of sounding arrogant, I think this poem captures it a little better. One night, I dreamed a dream. I was walking through dense woods. At times, I appeared to be walking alone. See, no one was around. No one cared or expressed interest. When I looked more closely, they were there. Some hid behind the trees, thinking they too were alone. Others were further ahead, leading the way. Still, others were behind, following my trail. A small group was right beside me with outstretched arms and welcoming smiles, at times visible at others, hidden from view. And behind them all and in them all and through them all, those that hid, those that led, those that followed, and those close at hand, God. Then I saw a city. It was majestic and exquisite, like a new bride. Radiant and perfect. A city teeming with people beyond number. Those that used to hide, those that led, those that followed, and those that expressed care. They were all there, and I was among them. And then I heard a loud voice. The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. I wept, but then he wiped every tear from my eye. Amen. What I'd like you to do with the person beside you, you can pick whether you want to go left or right on this one, what jumps out at you as we reflect on hopeful faith with others? From the philosophy, from the grammar, from the reflective reading, and from this poem, What for you right now at this season in your life jumps out that you need to grasp onto a little more firmly? So let me encourage you for a few minutes to mumble with your neighbor. There is something, three implications for me very briefly. I think the Christian life done with others and not on your own is more hopeful. Sometimes in dark times and difficult times and times when you're really struggling with your own faith, it's amazing to be with people who will help you walk in your Christian faith with you. And I don't know if you've had this experience. My experience is sometimes I'm having trouble hanging on to God, but I need people around me who are so I can hang on to their ankles, right? Sometimes being alone in our faith is less hopeful. We live in 2020, as we talked about last week in a fair bit of uh, detail. This is a lived experience culture. There's nothing wrong with lived experience. It's an important counter counterbalance to some of the emphasis on objective reality that many of us older people grew up on. But lived experience pushed to an extreme leads to individualism, privatization, and it's very ugly first cousin, narcissism, right? That's where autonomy and individualism can go if it's unbridled. And when we go there, then our major social problem becomes aloneness. And isn't it interesting in the culture that as narcissism rises, aloneness is also arising and going higher. And there's less hope in that. Because if it's all up to me, I don't find a lot of hope all the time inside. But if I'm with you, it's a lot different. So lived experience has great benefits. We talked about that last week, but it has some dangers. And let me talk to some of you here who may not be Christian or may not identify with the Christian faith. Uh, even intuitively, you may know that there's a passage in the Bible that talks about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And you've heard a lot about faith, and you've heard a lot about love, even as you've been on the edge of Christian faith. But it seems to me one of the great things about the Christian faith is not just our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationship with one another. And the aloneness that comes when we are foreigners and strangers. I don't know if you caught that language in that passage you read. Paul does not say in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 that non-Christians are people who have this kind of stuff going on inside them. He calls non-Christians foreigners and strangers. But when we become part of the body, when we become part of his people, we live with others. And as we live with others, that brings a hopeful faith. And so for those of you who may not be Christian today, one of my hopes for you is that you would grasp the hope of that and learn to do a Christian faith with others. May God make it so. Amen.